Who is Jesus is the most important question I believe that any of us can answer. But you can't know who Jesus is if you don't get to know him. And that's what we're doing in this series, Who is Jesus? We're on this journey with him. And we continue it today. So turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, if you will, as we move on with Jesus. He's going to take us uh, 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Sister Philippi is a pagan city. It was occupied by Gentiles, and there they worship uh, the god Pan. They also had a temple that was dedicated there to Caesar Augustus. It was built by Herod the Great. Caesar Augustus, by the way, when he died, the Roman Senate uh, basically uh, voted him as deity. So it's against that background, a mythical uh, god and a man who after he dies is... Uh, voted in as a God, that Jesus asks us this question. And this question is, who do the crowds say that I am? Well, the followers of Jesus speak up and they say, well, some say you're John the Baptist, come back to life again. Others say you're Elijah. And still uh, others say you're one of the prophets. It would be curious if Jesus were to corner you and me and to ask us, what's the word on the street where you live, people you hang with? Who do they say that I am. Uh, maybe we would answer, well, you know, some people think you're like a wise sage, like Confucius or Buddha. Um, others might say, well, some people think you're like uh, a prophet, like Muhammad. Others might say, well, you know, I, people not quite sure you even exist, though historically speaking, all the evidence is there. They're just not sure what to do with you. And then Jesus asked his first followers, who do you say that I am? And Peter, speaking for the rest, says, well, we've come to the conclusion that you are the Messiah. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I'm going to guess that most of us, probably not all of us, but most of us would concur with that very same confession. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And if you're not there yet, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're checking it out because all of us begin that journey someplace. But my next question, which I've asked before, is so What? So what I say I believe in God? So what I say that Jesus is the Son of God? What difference does it make in my life? What does it, difference does it make in our lives together? You know, I want to make sure we're all on the same page as we continue this journey with Jesus. That it's not an individualistic journey. That God doesn't just deal with us as individuals. He sees us as part of a family Jesus invented the church, not the buildings, but us together. And God always pictures us together in community. He deals with us individually, yes, but he deals with us in community. And there are things that God does in the community of believers that he won't do individually. There are things about God you'll never experience unless you're in community. So it's not I am on the journey, it's we are on the journey. That's why we're called the body of Christ. Our presence, for instance, here, in Ian Prairie on this campus, is to be the very presence of Christ in this community. And when people see this building, they ought not to think of the architecture, they ought to think about the, they ought to think about the Savior, Jesus. And they ought to be able to say to one another, you know, when you go to that place, there is a sense, a supernatural sense of God's presence. But the question is, is there? Is there in your life? Is there in your family, if you're believers? Is there in our gathering together? Or do we sometimes reflect more a community organization or a highly dysfunctional family? 
A lot of that depends on who we believe Jesus is and how alert we are to his presence. And so Jesus now takes us up a mountain, a mountain nearby where he met with his disciples in Caesarea Philippi, Mount Hermon, known as the Mount of Transfiguration. And there he moves us from confession to worship. That it's not enough that we just say we believe in Jesus. It's, it's meant to be a worshipful experience. It's meant to be an experience that we have individually, but an experience that we have collectively, corporately, together. What is that worship experience supposed to be like in our lives as well as in our gatherings? Look at, look at Luke chapter 9, verse 28. It says, about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. His clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Can you imagine? Remember, Jesus has never had a body until he came to earth. God took on flesh and became like us. Until then, you know, he existed uh, immaterially as, as spirit everywhere at one time. That's, that's how we define God, all-knowing, all-present. It just boggles the, the human mind when you, when you think about it. And so, you know, he kind of gave up his glory, so to speak, to become like us. But now on this mountain, we see his glory. We see, we see him emanating with the very presence of God. And it's like lightning. A couple of years ago, Marsha and my wife went uh, to visit our grandkids in Texas, and she had our grandson in her hand, and she walked out, in her arms, and she walked out into the driveway, and all of a sudden, there was this huge thunder, a uh, clap of thunder, loud, and a lightning strike. And she said, it was so close, it was so bright, it was blinding. She said, she could feel the electricity brush up against her. The hair in her arms stood straight. In fact, a house just down the way, the, the shingle just blew off the house, a couple of houses. And she had come so close, she and my grandson, to being struck by lightning. Well, I don't want you to get offended by this necessarily, or duck. But I think the church in America today needs to be struck with the presence of God. I think many of us in our spiritual lives need to be struck with the presence of God. That is, we need to wake up to the presence of God. I'll show you what I mean. Let's keep reading in the passage of Scripture. Verse 30. It says, Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor. Now, it's an interesting uh, verse there because Moses and Elijah had, you know, had died, right? Gone to be with God. Now they're coming back for this experience and they're in glorious splendor, which gives us a picture of what we're going to be like someday. Someday you will, in your resurrected form, be in glorious splendor, the glorious splendor of being completed in your journey with God. Looking forward to that, aren't you? I mean, some of you are in your glorious splendor today, but nothing like this will be, all right? Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Now watch this. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. Can we just stop there for a moment? Can you underline, underscore, highlight, very sleepy? How many of you have ever tried to pray, read the scriptures, and felt very sleepy besides me. Happens every week to me. How many of you have ever gone to a church service, 
a worship service that felt very sleepy. Yes, I noticed that. Someone, one of our early services said to me, if you see me nodding off sometimes because I come right, I come here right from work. I said, that's okay, I totally understand. I used to have a man in my, my very first church uh, as a pastor. He was a dairy farmer. If you know anything about dairy farmers, they're like up at 3 a.m. He'd come in and he'd go through the whole worship service, singing everything, and I could almost tell you by my watch, 10 minutes of my sermon, he'd be like this. And when I figured out what he did, I thought, I'm just amazed he showed up. Any dairy farmers here? Yeah, right. Yeah, excuse to fall asleep. I'm just kidding. All right. Stay awake. See, where are you going with this, Pastor Dale? Where are you going with this? I think a lot of us are half asleep in our journey with God. I think a lot of churches in our country are half asleep. We are only half awake to the presence and to the glory of God himself. Instead of being fully alive, fully engaged, fully aware, fully enraptured by this God who exists, by Jesus, who is indeed the very Son of God. When my little brother was young, he's four years younger than me, he would sleepwalk. Anybody here ever done that, sleepwalk? Okay, it's a strange experience, isn't it? I've never, I know of, done it, but he used to do it, and because he was younger, he'd go to bed earlier, and I'd be up in the living room with my mom or my dad, and he'd come out like a little zombie in his pajamas. And he'd just kind of walk like this, walk through the living room, and head toward our little dining room. My mom would always say, don't wake him up. Don't wake him up. Something bad might happen, which you shouldn't say, right? Because the first thing I want to do is what? Wake him up. See what happens. So I'd follow him around. I'd whisper, hey, Mark. Hey, Mark. And he would stop. He'd mumble. And he would do some really strange things. And then he'd go to bed. And you'd ask him the next day, do you remember? And he'd be like, you don't know what you're talking about. That never happened to me. It was like he was there, but he wasn't all there. It was like part of him was somewhere else. And I think that just describes so often our journey with God, doesn't it? Like I confess that he's the son of God, but I don't live captured by that, enraptured by that, in awe of that, in humility of that. There's so many other things to distract me in the media and in the news and with people and with problems that that we just go through life missing out on God. It's not because God's not here, it's because we're not here. We're just, we're half asleep. We're not fully engaged to his presence. Tim Keller, one of my favorite authors, writes about worship, and one of the things he says is this. He says, worship is when the things you might believe become real. And I love that. Worship is when the things that you might believe become real. It's when the things that you might sing about become real. You might read about become real. You might hear about become real. It goes from the mind to the heart. It becomes an expression. It becomes a reality for you. Can I ask you a question? I want to ask our students this question. Is God real to you? When you worship, is God real to you? When you read, when you pray, is God real to you? Do you get up every day realizing, I am so blessed, I know God, because God knows me. And it just captures you. 
You're more aware of God than you are of anything else. I wonder how many of us could say, yep, that's my experience. That's who I am. Which begs the question, how do I get to that place where, where I'm, I'm struck by the presence of God? Well, Keller goes on, he says, one of the things that's going to have to happen is we're going to have to, we're going to, have to get over this idea that, that knowing God is, is just is something inspirational. He says, worship is not inspiration. What is inspiration? Well, I got a little example to give you of inspiration. This is a balloon. Don't try this at home, okay? Um, let's take, for instance, many of us are, ins- how many of you are inspired by music? Let me see your hands, Okay. So we're inspired by music. How many of you are inspired by art? Right? We're inspired by art. How many of you are inspired by a great book, by, by, by a good novel? In fact, sometimes we get so inspired that we make New Year's resolutions. How many of you have done that? You're so inspired, you make New Year's resolutions. For instance, we, we make a resolution, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to diet. Speaks for itself. I'm going to start exercising. I'm going to stop old habits. I'm going to start new habits. We're so inspired. Somebody inspired us. Something inspired us. But here's what's wrong with inspiration. You ready? It's temporary. It fizzles. We start out strong and we lose that inspiration. If I can add on to what Keller I would put it, uh, said, I would put it this way. Jesus did not come to inspire you. He came to indwell you. Jesus did not come to inspire the church. He made the church to indwell the church. He indwells. He dwells among his people. So how do I move from inspiration to, to being vitalized with his presence, to be possessed by his presence in mind and in heart. Well, the first thing I have to do is I have to become aware of the greatness of God. The greatness of God. And this is what happens on the mountain. Look at it with me, beginning at verse 33. It says, as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying, which was kind of a problem with Peter. He didn't always know what he was saying. It's a problem with us sometimes too. Now watch what happens. Because what happens in verse 34 is a response to Peter's suggestion, let me build three lean-tos, three huts, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for you, Jesus. The father responds in verse 34 says, while Peter was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them. They were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. Why were they so afraid of this cloud that descends? Well, Peter, James, and John knew their Old Testament. We may not know it as well. So let me remind you that in the Old Testament, the first appearance of this cloud of glory happens in the book of Exodus when God takes his children out of Egypt on the way to the promised land. And to go with them, God sends a cloud. 
the very cloud of his presence. At night, it looks like a pillar of fire. During the day, it's this cloud. And wherever the cloud moves, the children of Israel go with the cloud. It is the cloud that descends on Mount Sinai with rumbling and thunder and lightning and quaking earth. God has come down to be amongst his people and Moses goes and speaks to God. It's the cloud that descends on the tabernacle when God speaks to Moses. It is the very cloud that Moses in Exodus chapter 33 verse 18 says, God, I want to enter right into the cloud and I want to see your face. Can you students imagine that? And God says to Moses, you can't. You'll die if you do. Nobody can get that close to me. And God hides him in the cleft of the rock and God just passes by him. The cloud is God's glory. And when you go back to the Mount of Transfiguration and God speaks out of the cloud and said, this is my son, listen to him. In essence, what God is saying is, my son is my glory. Who is Jesus? He's the very glory of God. The very being of God. That's why later on when John writes his little epistle, 1 John, he opens up by saying, that which was from the beginning, which we have seen, which we have heard, which we've looked on and we have touched, I present to you. They looked into the face of God. They touched and handled God himself. Who is Jesus? Do you see why it's such an important question to answer? He's the very glory of God himself. Irenaeus was one of the early church fathers, and he was a disciple of John the Apostle. Can you imagine being discipled by John the Apostle? And Irenaeus wrote something. He said, the glory of God is the human being fully alive, and the life of the human consists in beholding God. Did you catch that? He says, the glory of God is the human being fully alive and the life of the human consists in beholding the glory of God. In other words, what he's saying is, if you want to be like really alive, if you really want to be alert, if you really want to be awake, focus on the glory of God. Worship the glory of God. That's when you come alive. N.T. Wright, who's a New Testament theologian, has written, how can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human? That the fire has become flesh? That life itself came to life and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world or it is a sham, nonsense. Most of us unable to cope with saying either of these things, that he is or he isn't, condemn ourselves to live in a shallow world between who is Jesus? Pretty profound, isn't it? Peter, when Jesus asked the question, who do men say that I am, responded, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then we get to the Mount of Transfiguration, and when he sees Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus, he said, it's, it's like he was seeing his three favorite superheroes. He said, can we just build three little tents? One for Moses, one for Elijah, one for you, Jesus. And let's just stay up here. I don't want to go back down again. This is heaven on earth. <laughs> and so when God speaks out of the cloud and says to him and the others, this is my son. My son is my glory. In essence, what he's saying is, don't put my son in a museum. Don't put him in a book of heroes and make him like everybody else. He stands out from the book. 
He stands alone as unique because he's very God. And so N.T. Wright goes on and says, either he's no tent or he's the tent. Either he's no way, he said, excuse me, either he's no way to God at all or he's the very glory of God. But don't live in the center. Don't live in the shallows. Don't live in inspiration. Worship him or hate him. But make up your mind. How many uh, students do we have, let's say, under the age of 20 in the house? Let me just see your hands for a minute. Well, you can raise them high. You won't be struck by lightning. Right? I am, can I just speak to you for a moment? I'm, first of all, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of the fact that you're here today. Secondly, I just, you live in a tough world. You live in a world that, that wants to put Jesus in a tent with a whole bunch of other people It just wants to take away from his greatness and uniqueness because he's so demanding when he says, I am the only way. I want to challenge you students. I want to challenge you to answer the question who Jesus is and to live, to live like you believe who Jesus says he is. And not to be ashamed and not to be afraid. And you've got our prayers. And you've got our encouragement. We need to come alive to who Christ is. We need to come alive to his uniqueness as the Son of God, which then begs, you know, the question, why is it so hard for us to become aware and stay aware of the greatness of God? Why aren't we knocked to our knees? Why don't we live in awe of who he is? And I think it's because we have a tendency to be, to be preoccupied with our struggles in life. Listen carefully. To understand the greatness of God, you have to understand that the greatness of God is also his weakness. I know that doesn't make sense at first. But the greatness of God is also his weakness. See, what do you mean by that? Well, if you go back to the text and you look at what discussion Moses and Elijah are having with Jesus, it tells us in verse 31 that they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. The word that should be translated better uh, is not departure, but is exodus. They're talking about Jesus' exodus. Well, when do we ever read about another exodus in the Old Testament? When God leads his people through Moses out of Egypt on the exodus to the promised land? There are 10 plagues. The 10th plague is the death angel who passes over. And God says to Moses, tell the people to take a lamb, slaughter the lamb, put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, and gather in there for a very special meal. And when the death angel passes over, whatever house has the blood on the doorposts, they will be spared judgment and death. In Jerusalem... Jesus is about to lead your exodus and my exodus. He will be slaughtered as the Lamb of God. God will smear his cross, will smear his blood on the cross, as it were, across our lives, so that God's judgment and condemnation passes over us. Doesn't land on us, but lands on him, and God gives us forgiveness and mercy and grace. And the world, you know, of that time looked at the death of Jesus as a weakness. The Romans, the Gentiles, the Greeks laughed at it. The Jews couldn't stand it. But in his perceived weakness, God exercised his greatest strength. He saved us. And sometimes we're like, sometimes we struggle with the greatness of God because we're very aware of our weaknesses. 
We're aware of our circumstances and our problems. And we say, God, if you're so great, so strong, and so mighty as we used to sing, then God, why am I going through this hardship? God, if you're so awesome and so great, why is the church being persecuted, and increasingly so in North America? Why do we see Christians and your church belittled so much? And we get so hung up on that that we fail to realize that it's in that weakness that God's strength can be experienced. I love what Paul said. Remember, he said, when I am weak, what? He is strong. So my weakness is an opportunity for me to abandon myself to God. And when I'm abandoned to God, we'll learn more about this next week, when I lose myself, God shows up. Which leads me to one final little thought, and that's this. Then one of the reasons we struggle to truly experience the greatness of God and to, and to really worship God is we're just so preoccupied with ourselves. How many of you find yourself preoccupied with yourself besides me? We wrestle with it all the time, don't we? Our self gets in the way so often of seeing the glory and the greatness of God. And nowhere does it tend to get in the way more often than when we're here together as his body. Where God promises to show up in a way that he won't show up anywhere else. But we've got to forget about ourselves. So I want to tell you a story about myself. I'm going to tell it myself. It's not a nice story, but I'm going to tell it to you. Because I've experienced what I'm trying to preach. Back in the 90s, I was selected with one other pastor out of many applicants uh, to do a sabbatical in preaching at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary under a man named Han Robinson, who at that time, Newsweek Magazine said was one of the 12 greatest preachers in the world. So I felt pretty good about myself. And we went away for a whole semester and we lived in the married student housing. We had our kids there and I learned so much from him and I got to help teach, uh, do a little bit of teaching assistance and we found a little Baptist church to attend. So we went to this Baptist church. If you know anything about the churches out east, I mean, out east is tough, tough to do ministry out there. A lot of negativity, especially back then. So this is this little church in a small community, and it's a tough situation. And, and we decided to go there, and I began going to worship services every weekend, and I was a, I was a terrible attender. I would sit there, and I would, I would go through the entire hour of worship and do nothing but critique. I know none of you have ever done that, but I did it. I critiqued the building. It looked like it had been built during colonial times. I critiqued the miserable pews with no padding and the curved back on them, so uncomfortable. I critiqued the music because it was all amateur hour. It wasn't very good, and sometimes it was off key, and, and sometimes the singing wasn't the best, and, I critiqued the pastor when he preached because sometimes it was so boring and I'd re-preach it in my mind and then on the way home I'd tell my wife what was wrong with that service until she got kind of tired of hearing me and then one day I was in our little bedroom by myself and I was alone with God and God ambushed me. Has that ever happened to you? And God asked me two questions. I did not hear a voice but these questions came just dominant into my thoughts. And the first question is this, why do you go and who are you going for? And it just slayed me. You ever had your legs taken off from underneath of you playing sports or 
<laughs> slipping on the ice. <laughs> and I realized, and God showed me, that I went there and I was making that worship service about me. I was inserting my place and displacing God. It was all about how are you making me feel? How are you preaching to me? How are you singing to me? How are you, what is your attitude like to me? What is the environment, the ambiance for me? And I realized it's not about me, it's about God. At the end of the day, the question is, what did God think? And he probably hasn't decided that I'm the one to answer for him. And it so humbled me. And I felt so ashamed. How dare I do that? I was quenching. I was grieving his presence. No wonder I didn't see God. No wonder I wasn't aware of the glory of God. Because it was all about me. And God taught me three things that I want to share with you that I've tried to practice since then. The first thing God taught me is, before I worship, I need to prepare myself. Whether it's at home, on my own, in my quiet time, or when I come and join the body of Christ. I need to prepare myself. See, how do you prepare yourself? I liken it to going on a, on a date with my wife. First thing I do is I take a shower, I get cleaned up. Before I worship God, I need to get cleaned up. I need to basically, spiritually undress myself before God and admit my sins and admit my faults and ask his forgiveness and humble myself. Because I'm going to go into his presence. Secondly, I need to dress for the occasion. I'm not talking about a suit and tie. That's legalism. But I am talking about dressing in robes of righteousness. Not my righteousness, because my righteousness, the Bible says, is like filthy rags. The robes I'm talking about are the robes of his righteousness. That is, after I've confessed and washed up, I need to accept that God loves me, that God's forgiven me. No matter what I've done. They've torn the veil in two. I don't need a priest to go before God. I can go boldly, it says in Scripture, I can go boldly into the presence of God. And I, I prepare and know that when I'm coming, I'm going to be in the atmosphere of God. And then secondly, God taught me to expect his presence. There's just way too many of us that don't prepare and don't expect. We just don't expect God to show up. That's why it's so boring. That's why it's so ho-hum. That's why we fall asleep when we pray, when we read, and when we go to church. We're not expecting something. We want something or someone to inspire us. We want somebody or something to entertain us and keep us alert. Rather than realizing that God is there. We're two or three gathered together in my name. There I am in the midst. Now, the context of that is church discipline. But imagine when it's just worship. God is very present there. And so I began to look for God. It's amazing when you look for God, you will find him. He had always been there. How did I miss him? Because I was looking at myself. Or I was looking at other people the wrong way. And I began to see God in the faces of these dear little ladies that tried to sing. I began to see God and hear God in the voice of the preacher who would preach that sermon and I focused more on the truth and less on him. I began to see God in a church that had been there for so long and was struggling in a place that was so hard to reach and pretty soon I just became so aware of the presence of God. 
Now, his presence had always been there. I just finally showed up. And any given weekend, his presence is here. And any given week during junior high, during senior high, during fifth, sixth grade, his presence is there. The question is, do I show up to his presence? Am I awake? Am I alert to his presence? Do I look for it? If you look for his presence, you will see it. You will hear it. You'll be amazed by it. And then the last thing is, I learned I needed to engage. Prepare, expect, engage. You know, the Bible says, God says in Exodus, don't show up to worship empty-handed. I was showing up empty-handed, empty-headed, and (laughs) empty-hearted. Don't show up empty-handed. So I came and I showed up to give. I showed up to give financially, yes, but I showed up to give in my prayers. I showed up to give in music, and I can't sing. I can't even clap on time, rhythm. I got to watch other people clap so I don't mess up. But God's not, you know, at the end of the weekend, God doesn't go, man, did you see how that guy can't clap? What are we going to do with him up here? It doesn't matter to God. What matters to God is the intent of the heart. I showed up to pray. I showed up to bow. I showed up to think about God. I showed up to shake hands. I showed up to help. If we prepare, expect, and engage, guess what happens? That's when we realize the greatness and the glory of God. Now, does that sound like you? Does that sound like us? It can be. It should be. It will be if each one of us makes that choice to begin to come alive to his presence. Let's pray. Father God, we humble ourselves before you right now, oh God. And I know we're pressing up toward the noon hour and we have plans and places to go and things to do and we want to get out early and God, I just pray we'd be struck by your presence for a few minutes. And we set aside our own agenda and we get focused on you. You're in this place, God. You are here. You're here. Are we here? Father, in these next few moments, we just want to be aware of you. And we ask you to forgive us for our unawareness. We ask you to forgive us for our self-preoccupation. I ask that you would forgive us, Lord, focusing on our weaknesses instead of seeing our weaknesses as opportunities for your strength. God, before we go into this world and culture that is so difficult these days, we need refreshment. We need your presence. We need to be aware of you. We need a a vision of your glory, oh God. This needs to be our refueling time, Lord. And I pray, God, that what would happen here this year at Whitdale Church, Lord, is that we would long to be here. We would long to be with you and long to be with each other. And I pray that the communities around us would hear that God is present in that building. They would come and taste and see and experience. We pray for a revival. We pray for a awakening in our souls, oh God. So, Lord, we're going to turn our attention to you now. The next few moments in worship, I hope you'll stay. 
I want you to feel free to worship God any way you want. If you want to come down here, kneel, sit, stand, bow. If you want to stay there, kneel, sit, stand, bow. If you want to raise your hands, put your hands in your pockets. It doesn't matter to me. This is about you. This is about you coming alive to God. This is about us glorifying our Father in heaven as his family who he came a long ways for to love. Let's love on God together.